Let's have a seat and open the Word of God to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are so glad that you are here, so glad to share with you in this rejoicing of a day, this, this day where these parents are dedicating themselves to raising the children that God's given them for His glory. This Sunday is also called Orphan Sunday. And so there is a a focus today on children. And as we consider children, we we consider what children mean and and what we are to do as parents, as adults in a church who are not parents or not parents of other people's children. How do we view this life in this church together with children as the Word of God informs and teaches us what we should think about children and their families and children without families, the Word of God informs us how we to view all of life. And so this morning we'll spend a few minutes just considering children and caring for them per God's plan. And there are, are two parts to this. There is the ideal and the other than the ideal. Our culture has made it a hobby of destroying any ideal that mankind has been given from the Lord. Anything that we've understood for generations, the basic creation order is challenged, it's mocked, it's sabotaged at every turn from, from what a man or a woman is to what marriage is, whether parents should have a say in what their children are taught in school or what they can read or should read in libraries, from, from the role of government to the role of work in our lives, everything that has been seen as ideal is now taught as a target for destruction to tear apart in our culture, but from the lens of Scripture, God's Word tells us what the ideal is, and it helps us understand our role within the ideal, and that's where we'll begin this morning. So let's first begin. The first blank in your notes is the ideal, and we're not talking about perfection this morning. We live in a sin-cursed world. Even the best ideal is tainted with sin, with curse on this creation, but God's ideal for children comes Right at the beginning of the Word of God in Genesis, God's declared will. He told Adam and Eve and all mankind, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth. Well, how do you do that? Well, it begins with marriage at the end of Genesis chapter 2. God gave one man and one woman to come together, and He gave them all that they needed in food and water and safety, and they were to have children. But then what? Well, God's ideal, the ideal plan was for a married father and mother to raise their own biological children. But to what end? To what purpose? Many books and therapies and websites, many advice columns are ready to answer that question. Many Christians are not. What should be our aim for raising children? What does God say our goal should be? Is it happy people? Should we have as our goal to raise happy children and then happy adults or productive adults? Is it good citizens? Is it to make them good workers? Well, the first explicit command from God to parents of what to teach their children was found in Exodus three times during the Passover as God told the parents to teach their children about how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But Deuteronomy 6 is where we get specific on the kind of instruction that all parents are to teach their children. And it's not a skill or a profession. 
The Bible doesn't teach all parents to grow their children so that they become one type of person. We're not all going to have the same types of personalities, the same types of strengths or weaknesses. Not all people need to be outgoing or, in the words of today, extroverted. Or not all children are supposed to be introverted. We're not commanded to teach them to be any certain kinds of workers or any really, education a certain way in this world. It's not happiness. It's not even productivity. And if you can believe it, the Bible doesn't even prohibit mamas from letting their children grow up to be cowboys. I thought there'd be more more people that were familiar with that. I guess I'm just getting older. Here's what Deuteronomy 6 says. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Parents, what is your first responsibility? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what happens when you love the Lord like that? Verse 6 says you're going to talk about him. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So parents, when you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and when his word is on your heart, you're going to speak it. These, uh, uh, these words I command you today shall be on your heart because they're based in love, because this is what you think about and talk about. Verse 7 says you shall teach them diligently to your children. And You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, at formal times, like when you're having family devotions or other times where you've set aside to teach your children and just going through life. In all times, at all times, the word of God is coming out of your mouth and it's coming out of your actions because it's in your heart, because of your love for the Lord God. That's what children should hear from their parents. And this is where the Bible applies to all people for all time. This is the parent's job. This is our goal. Parents, teach your children the word of God. That's what every parent of every kid is supposed to do. Now, of course, parents are supposed to teach other things, like a good work ethic and manners and respect. We're not trying to oversimplify the task of parents this morning. But the first and primary job is for us to teach them what they will never learn from the world. That's the Word. The Lord and His Word, formally and informally, we are to teach and to guide and to, and to train and discipline them. You say, what? Hold on. Discipline? Where did that come from? Well, contrary to worldly philosophy today, no child arrives as a blank slate. That, that has been made as a claim. That is believed by many in our culture. But when we look at the very first child born into this world, the first time a child was born into this world, he became a murderer. And they couldn't blame society because there was no society. <laughs> there were no video games. There were no movies. There was no society. It wasn't because mommy didn't love him. Mommy, when he was born, thought he was the Messiah already. He thought, look, she said, I've gotten the Messiah, I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. It wasn't education or training that was missing. He was taught how to farm. And it wasn't because he was missing a spiritual element, uh, you know, something bigger than himself. He was bringing a sacrifice to God. And it wasn't because he didn't know right from wrong. God himself counseled him. Everything he needed, he had, and yet he became a murderer of his brother. Every child is born sinful, as cute as they are, as innocent as they seem when they're born. David says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's not talking about his mother being unfaithful to his father. 
He's talking about how he was born like all other children, a sinner. But parents, our job is to drive away that sinful bent. Proverbs 22, 15 says, folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And see, people object today. You can't do that. You'll crush his spirit. you'll, You'll cause undue spiritual or physical or psychological or mental harm. But God says that harm is already there in his heart. God says that folly and the harm that's there is is already bound up. It's the parent's job to drive it away through discipline. Parents have the job, ideally, to raise their own children for the Lord and not for any other purpose. We saw in Deuteronomy here, they're to teach their children the Word of God. Is there any help in the New Testament? Is there anything that that goes along with this? Well, I'm glad that you asked that because we can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And as we look in Ephesians... There are many other places we could look at in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but let's just consider this because in verse 1, he's not going to say, children, run the house. He's not going to say, children, be the boss of the house. Children, be the focus of the house. Here's what he says in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, we know that there are commands in the New Testament for wives to submit to husbands, This is not that word submit. This is not the idea of we are equals working together and one is submitting to the leadership of the other. This is obey. Children, do what your parents tell you to do. Now, the qualifier here is in the Lord. Because parents are never to be tyrannical dictators of a home, commanding children for their own benefit, commanding them, ordering them around, just do what I want and don't irritate me. Parents are never to teach sin. This is in the Lord. So after repeating the commandment for children to honor parents and the promise that goes with that, verse 4 is the warning. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, what are we to do, fathers? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Here it is again, of the Lord. Provoking them to anger. What does that look like? Well, it can look a lot of different ways. Because the opposite of provoking them to anger is bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it can look like what it most often looks like today, which is fathers ignoring their children. It can look like being disinterested in your children. And and the, the statistics are just overwhelming out there about the father's impact in the home on children. And when fathers are ignoring and, and being disinterested in their children, that is provoking them to anger. It's no mistake that this is directed to fathers here. If you look back at verse 1, it has the word for parents. Verse 4 is the word fathers. Now, it doesn't have to look like being disinterested in children. It can look like fathers constantly berating their children, always getting after them, never having a good, encouraging word to say. It can look like fathers coddling their children, excusing every behavior, never correcting them. Like we said, it can look a lot of different ways. Any of that could be included. Because the only right way that God tells for fathers to raise their children and for mothers to support in this is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of Dr. Spock. No, no, I'm glad that you laughed. (laughs) His advice from his book published in 1946 and further editions sold more copies than any book in the 20th century except the Bible. It's estimated over 50 million copies of that book 
were sold to parents, and it was based on theories from Sigmund Freud and others. Are we to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of Oprah or Dr. Phil or anything in the world? No, it's the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It hasn't changed from the Old Testament parents. We haven't been given different instructions. The Lord is our judge. He's our audience. He says what we're supposed to do. Bring them up means to nourish them and to promote the health and the growth and the strength and, and the, the strength of what? The, the discipline, which is training them to form proper habits. The, the training here is the same word that Second Timothy 3.16 says, training in righteousness. So we're nourishing, promoting growth, training them in proper habits. The instruction of the Lord is warning and admonition against bad behavior. So we're doing the, the good and we're doing the bad and we're coming alongside and it all comes from the Lord, His Word. That's what parents are called to do. Ideally, this is what's supposed to happen. One man, one woman come together, they have a child or children, and they raise them by teaching them the word of the Lord in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So whether those children, I know that is amazing, and we praise God for that. So whether those children become garbage collectors, janitors, car salesmen, truck drivers, construction workers, CEOs, lawyers, doctors, whether they're married or single or whatever they can do, they're going to do that for the Lord. That's our goal. That's the ideal. Now, there are two things that I wanted to cover before we get to the other than ideal. How far do parents' responsibility go? The parents' responsibilities, how far does that go? And then what is our responsibility who are not those childs, those children's parents? How far do parents' responsibilities go first? Simply, parents, fathers and mothers, you are required to be faithful. You are not perfect. We have a perfect heavenly father already. Hebrews 12 talks about his perfect discipline of us, his children. So you, mother, father, are going to mess up. But God uses that. As we were talking about this morning, as we heard from Rod and Kim, that's such a great and excellent picture of the gospel when you confess to your children where you've sinned, where you've messed up. You ask their forgiveness, and boy, is that humbling and difficult. But it's such a great, excellent picture for them to see that even you fall under the discipline and instruction of the Lord and that you confess to him. So we love the Lord first, and then we do what he says to do in relation to our children. It's so simple, and yet it's so difficult. It's so important, and yet it's so hard. Parents, you have influence over your children. You have a great impact on them. While they live with you, you have the power to enforce obedience. (laughs) But you can never change their heart. Just be faithful with what God says. I wanted to address Proverbs 22.6 with parents this morning. You don't have to turn there. You can if you would like. But this is the way that it reads in the ESV. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I wanted to address this because many parents know this, and many parents hear this verse. And many English translations translate it this same way. Most of the, of the translations that we have in English give it this way, and it's often viewed as a promise. It's a promise that if I'll just be good enough, if I'll just do the right things, my children will be good. They'll turn out the right way. Christian parents have worked so hard at this, they've viewed this verse like a vending machine verse. I put in enough coins, I do enough good things, then out pops the right kind of child, right? 
The parents who have children that turn out the way they hoped grow in pride and self-satisfaction. Yep, I did it. I put in the right kinds of coins. I did the right things. I said and taught the right things. Parents who have children who didn't turn out the way they hoped mourn constantly over all of the regrets. I didn't do enough. I, I just wish I could have. I wish I, wish I should have. And, and, and all of the, the regrets and the mourning of the past. And parents who have children at home still are anxious about waiting to find out, am I doing enough? Did I do enough? Did I mess up too much? What a cruel way to understand this verse from the word of God. Is, do you think that's what God had in mind? That some parents grow in pride and other parents mourn for the rest of their lives and all of parents with children are just anxious the entire time they have children. I don't believe that's what God had in mind. Again, every English translation, major English translation gives the similar sense. And the verse is explained as a truism that generally speaking, you have an influence and impact in your children's lives and if you raise them a certain way, they won't depart from it. That could be correct that generally, in a, in a general, broad, truistic sense, maybe that is true often. But according to some Hebrew scholars, we've misunderstood this verse for generations because we've mistranslated it. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I, I, you know, I'm barely able with tools to translate roughly from Hebrew to English as preparation for preaching. But, but able Hebrew scholars have told us that we've mistranslated that verse because of a Hebrew idiom, figure of speech, that we've missed. Here's a literal translation of that verse. Train up a child in the way of his mouth, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The way of his mouth is a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech. And English translators have said that it means in the way he should go, but that's not the way that it's translated anywhere else that it's used. And Leviticus 24.12 is emblematic of how it is translated in other places. In Leviticus 24, the people of Israel are in the wilderness, and a man begins to, to do what he should not do, and he blasphemes the name of the Lord. And so the people said, we need to find out what to do. So they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. The will of the Lord is this phrase. The, 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 the idiom itself means in accordance with or by the will of or at the command of. And that's what, it's mean, that's what it's translated as. That's what it means every time it's used for people or for God. So the verse should probably be translated something more along these lines. Train up a child by his will, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Instead of a promise of do enough good and good will come out, it's a warning that if you don't do anything, the child will come as a sinner and remain a sinner. Rather than a promise that if you do everything right, you'll get the ideal kid, it's a warning. If you do not discipline a child, you will get a self-willed child who becomes a self-willed adult who remains that way for his entire life. Now, in either case, whether it's supposed to be the, the truism that if you try your best, you might get the best, or, or whether it's the warning that if you don't do anything, you're going to get what you paid for. <laughs> in either sense, whatever way it is, fathers and mothers, release yourselves of the pressure to do good enough to have good enough kids and adults. Your job, parents, in the ideal situation is to be faithful to do what God has called you to do. You cannot change a child's heart. Your job is not to produce what you cannot produce. God does not tell parents to raise happy people. God does not tell parents to raise productive people or even Christians. You can't raise a Christian. You can't do it for them. 
You can force behaviors for a time, but you have no control over your child's heart. Your job is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength to get that word out through your mouth and in your actions all the time in front of your children and an attempt to reach their heart with the the word of God. But as he or she grows and becomes an adult, your child will have a will of his own and will become responsible for himself or herself. So you be faithful with what God has for you to do. That's what we're called to do. What about parents of other people's children? What about adults in here who are not parents? I'm a parent, but I'm not a parent of everybody's children, right? Adults in the church who are not parents. By the way, not every adult will be married. Not every married couple will have children. Some married couples will not be given children because children come from the Lord. It's up to him. Some of those married couples will choose to adopt or foster. Others won't. This is all how we live our lives before the Lord and what he calls for each of us to do. So what about us in the church? What about us adults who are not parents or adults who have our own children and we're not parents to other people's kids? What is our role? Our role toward toward those parents of those other children is to pray for them to help to provide wisdom when we can, to correct with Scripture, and otherwise, excuse the language, but out. Not judge. I don't have those children. So I don't know the best way to discipline and to teach other people's children. God has equipped those parents for that task. Our role is to give biblical wisdom, but otherwise not judge on, well, that family eats that kind of food. That family talks about that kind of thing for fun. That family does this for discipline and that for punishment. God has equipped the parents that he's given the children to. We love and we pray for and we support scripturally. And and when there is no discipline we bring the scriptures with those parents and we encourage with the scriptures. But when they are working and loving and caring for those children, we pray for them. We support them. Now, just a word to young people in this ideal situation. You might look at your parents. You may look at all of the things that you wish were different in your family. You might say, I wish my dad would fill in the blank. I sure wish my mom would stop fill in the blank. My parents are so fill in the blank. And you could fill in each of those, right? And you've got many, many more children in the ideal situation, but your instruction is to stop and thank God for what you do have. And you can take responsibility for what you can control, your own behavior, your own attitude, and obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. That impacts the rest of the family. That impacts the rest of our church family. That's what your role is in the family, and that will glorify God. And it will stand out in this culture as something different, something sanctified, something set apart. Well, that's the ideal situation. What about the other than the ideal? The perfect situation. Remember, this is not perfection. The, the perfect situation is for all of us who are God's children to be brought home to our perfect heavenly Father. That's the perfect situation when our sin is removed, our weakness is gone, and we are glorified to be with him forever. That's perfect. And then there's the ideal on earth that we just talked about, and even that is not perfect because we fall so far short. But there are situations in this world that are also outside the ideal, Talking about single parents, step parents, or no parents. Children who only have one parent, or children who have no parents, 
are starting out their life outside of what is the ideal that God declared to be his will in this earth. But it's not unique. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, on any given day in the U.S., there are over 391,000 children in foster care. The number is growing. Of the 300, over 391,000 children in foster care, over 113,000 are eligible for adoption but are waiting to be adopted. Over 100,000 children. The average wait is almost three years to be adopted. Now, none of this is meant to guilt trip anyone in here into anything. These are the facts in our country. They're worse around the world. But here in Arizona, according to reports, there are almost 15,000 children placed in out-of-home care, either away from the one parent that they have or both of their parents. Arizona is one of the states with the highest ratios of children in out-of-home care to children in in-home care. 14,890 children in out-of-home care, but there are only 2,900 licensed foster homes. When children cannot be placed in a licensed foster home, they go to an institution or a group home. In the U.S. in 2021, here's some good information. The latest year the numbers are available, in 2021, 53,500 children were adopted. And we should praise God for that that over 53,000 children were adopted. Over half of them were adopted by their foster families. But there were over 19,000 children who just aged out of the system. They waited so long, no one adopted them. Now they are legally adults. Now these are numbers that are tough, they're hard to hear, they're hard to even make sense of as we hear them rapidly as we're talking about them this morning, but we're talking about children. These are children who are in hard situations, but now that they're out of their home, but they were in harder situations in their homes, much worse. And and it's, it's hard for them to be removed from their homes, but it's even harder to stay. And it's staggering to think about how many children are still in difficult situations, hard places and, and horrible situations that we don't even know about. They haven't even been discovered. But here's the good news. It doesn't catch God by surprise. Doesn't catch, none of this has caught God by surprise. He has a plan. How will God care for children, particularly orphans who are missing one or both parents? It's a two-part plan. Number one in our notes, God cares for them by providing himself. God himself cares for these children. Psalm 146.9 says, the Lord watches over the sojourners He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God himself cares for widows and orphans and sojourners. In Deuteronomy 10, it says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God himself cares for those who are not able to care for themselves. Speaking to his faithfulness, Psalm 10 says, you have been the helper of the fatherless. God has always done it. He's always been that. He'll continue to do that. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless, and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
Now, there's a whole context to Psalm 68 about God's deliverance of his people and his his punishment and and justice and judgment on the wicked, on his enemies. But verse 6 leads us to the second part of God's plan. And listen to how God provides in verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So not only does God care for those who are alone, and he gives himself to them. Number two, God cares for them by providing his people. He provides his people. He, He provides for children. He cares for children who are missing their parents by appointing his people as care providers for them physically. As we see in Psalm 68, 6, God provides physical places for those who are alone homes with families in them. And it was so important to God for his people to care for widows and orphans that he commanded them right as they were leaving Egypt, as they were coming out into the wilderness before they even entered the land. In Exodus twenty-two twenty-two, he says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. He told his people that they needed to make physical preparation for them in Deuteronomy 14. Every three years, get a tithe, gather a bunch of food, and store it up for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And that command came with a blessing. He said that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hands do. God was not interested in his people saying, we'll pray for you, you poor children. Go in peace, be warm and filled without needing, meeting the needs of the body, as James says in James 2. What good is that? God has always planned for his people to care for those that he himself cares about. The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. To love God, brother and sister, to know God, to worship God means to care what he cares about and whom he cares about. When Israel thought that religion before God was just to fast and to obey and check these boxes and just do what I'm supposed to do on the worship days, God says, you're missing the point. The fast that God called for was for them to humble themselves, not figure out how to bring themselves pleasure. This is what he's talking about in Isaiah 58. Humble yourselves, quit trying to please yourselves. The fasts were to bring peace, but they were fighting with one another. And their fasts in in Isaiah 58 were to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? They had missed the point. They thought worshiping God was just go meet up with his people once a week. Go worship once a week. In fact, right at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 117, part of the correction that God was leveling to his people was learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. If we're going to truly live out this faith that we believe in God, the God who cares for widows, for orphans, for sojourners, our actions need to match what we care about because it's what he cares about. This is also something that has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's people Israel in the Old Testament were to care for the fatherless. God's people in the church in the New Testament are to care for them as well. And James 1.27 explains what that pure and undefiled religion, this personal religion, this personal moment and life of worship with God looks like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world is not falling in with the world's ideas and ideals. 
but specifically, he says, also included, includes uh, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, as we said, this is not meant to guilt trip everybody into trying to foster or adopt. That's not what our goal is here. But all of us can play a part. The word visit here just simply means to visit them for the purpose of comfort and relief. Many of us are not going to be able to bring children into our homes, but we can ensure that they're in a place of comfort and support and relief. And I'm so grateful for how many families in our church have adopted and so many churches, so many families in our church that have fostered and do still. And our CARES teams that have been so supportive to those families. I've been waiting for a good time to share this, but John has some pictures that I want to share with you about what one of our CARES teams did in our home to help us as we care for children. We had, at the time, our four children living in our home, and then this was an open den area at the front of our home, but it was just wide open. We couldn't use this as a room because there's no door on it. So one of our CARES teams came, and if you would, the next picture, please, framed it out, put a window on the top so the light could come through so we don't have this dark little corner at our front door. They framed it out, and then they finished it, textured it, and then the finished, there's the, the texturing, and then the finished product of a, a closed-in room with a door that we could home, have a, have a home for other children in our home. And up to this time, you know, I mean, in the meantime, of course, we've had some major life events of a marriage and a, a child in college, but in the meantime, my, my wife has been able to use that room occasionally to get some sleep when the babies are making a little too much noise <laughs> for her to sleep. But the support of people in our church is overwhelming for how people are praying for those foster families and adopting families and how they've brought meals. And there are so many ways for us to be continually involved in backpacks of hope, those backpacks that those foster children receive to care for their needs for the first 24 hours when they've been taken out of their homes. The cares teams, the, the, the prayers, and, and writing the cards so that those kids can read that somebody cares for them and somebody's praying for them. This is what it means to know our God when we care about what he cares about. In Jeremiah 22, we don't have time to look at it, so I'll just let you know that King Josiah's son was condemned for wickedness. And it wasn't because King Josiah's son, Shalom, was enjoying what he had. It was not because of that. King Josiah, God said, enjoyed all that he had. He ate and he drank and he enjoyed what God gave him. That wasn't the problem. Shalom took advantage of others. And Josiah instead judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well, God says, is not this to know me. Is not this to know me. To, to judge the cause of the poor and the needy. That's what it looks like to know the Lord. When we care for people in real physical ways, including especially orphans and widows. So for the responsibilities for adoptive parents and foster parents, there are no different they are no different as a responsibility from parents with their own children. We are to be faithful to teach the word of the Lord and guide and discipline. Now it's going to look different. Foster parents cannot discipline as they would their own children. Adoptive parents are going to need many more tools to raise their children. And those families would be eternally grateful for the prayers and support in different ways. But it's the same goal. 
teach these children the word of God. Whether you're in that ideal situation or other than ideal, step-parent, foster-parent, adoptive parent, single parent, whatever it is, our goal and our job is to do the best we can to love these children, to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Be as close to that ideal as you can be. And as an adopted son or daughter, your role isn't different either. Your role is to obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And our role as other adults in the church here are the same as well. Now, we're not going to pretend that everything's the same in terms of caring for adopted children or, or foster children who are growing up in your home. Things will be different. They'll be harder. But we raise these children for however long we have them, for whatever we can do for the Lord. And so I'm so thankful for the families that have come before us and that are faithful in adopting and fostering the Browns, the Dennises, the Smiths, the Demerts, others that I don't even know or, or haven't mentioned. I appreciate all that you all have done for children. There's a final part to highlight this morning on adoption on, on Orphan Sunday. It's so important to God that it's one of the ways that God describes our new status before him in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that last blank in your notes, the gospel. Adoption language is found throughout the New Testament in terms of the gospel. Before Jesus left in John 14, he promised his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, he said to all those who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he he gave right to become the children of God. God adopts us, and, and it's not just in John's writings in 1 John 3, 2, though. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. But in Paul's writings as well, and we don't have time to look at each of these, but Romans 8 tells us, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the word Daddy. Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God adopts us as his children through his Son. That's in Romans 8. That's in Galatians 4. That's in Ephesians 1. You have those verses in your notes. This is the gospel that God has always cared for children. He cares for the little ones and the big ones like us. He adopts us. He cares for us. God's work has always included orphans like Moses, who was taken from his family by a murderous government raised by the wife of Pharaoh. Like Hadassah, who was taken as a child when her parents died. You probably recognize her name as her foreign name, Esther. The prophet and final judge before the kings began, Samuel, whose mother gave him to the Lord voluntarily. Here, take him. Let let the priest raise him instead of me. God cares for children. He cares for children of all ages, and it's never too late to begin what he has said to do. So we encourage you to consider on the back of your notes page uh, some of the ways that you can also get involved here in our body caring for those that God cares about. Sunday, December 3rd is an Explore Canyon Kids orientation. That's where you can find out. You don't even have to sign up to do it. Just You can, you can sign up to come to, to find out the ways that our families care for children in the back when we dismiss them from our service. They don't go back there to play on jungle gyms. They go back there to learn the Word of God at their level. And they go back there to worship with their leaders, the great God, at their level. 
So the, you can see the information there about that on December 3rd. The Foster Family Wraparound Team is a, another ministry that, that we have. You, you've seen some of the ways that those teams care by bringing meals or praying for them or watching the children for them or building walls and doors. <laughs> uh, so many different ways that we can be involved in lives of people who are able to bring in kids into their home. But if you're interested more uh, in, in information about fostering or adopting, let us know. There's a clipboard on the information counter. And if there are enough people involved and in, in interested in just finding out about it, we can set up a, a, a session, an orientation in the near future. But this is God's heart. This is what God's word says from his will for us, his people to do. He cares for them and we need to as well. Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've shown us your will, your mind, and your heart, God, in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to read and to study and to obey what you've said, God, out of love for you, because we love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, strength. Lord, help us not to be legalistic. Lord, help us not to be guilt-tripped into doing anything, but God, that we would only do what you've called us to do because we love you, because you've saved us. You loved us first, and so we love you. Father, for parents, Lord, we pray for encouragement for them, Lord. We pray, God, that they would be relieved from pressures and stresses from the world to try to make children into the image of the world. Father, I pray that they'd be strengthened and equipped to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God, that you would be glorified by our families, whether they're in ideal or outside the ideal situations. God, Lord, I pray that you would give strength, that you'd give peace in those families. Lord, that you would bring reconciliation and forgiveness where there needs to be. Whether you'd bring a love, God, that transcends human understanding, Lord, and peace that transcends our understanding. God, all of this comes from you, and Lord, you don't call us into easy things. You don't call us, Lord, into what's simple, but Lord, it is simple to understand, but God, impossible without your leading, your guiding, equipping. Lord, we pray that you would do that. Lord, for those who don't have children in their home, Lord, I pray that they would pray for the parents and the children. Lord, that we all would be involved in caring for these families, Lord, who are raising children. God, you are the Lord. You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty one. Lord, you're deserving of this. You're worthy of this. We pray that this would all bring glory and praise and honor to your great name. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.